0: Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the sincere milk of the word like a newborn baby that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of the one who called us by glory and virtue by which has been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that we may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. As we come together to open God's word this morning, let's pray and ask God's blessing on our study this morning. Our Father, we are so thankful that we have your word. Scripture declares it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It illuminates our path. It illuminates the direction in which we are going, provides us that guidance, the way in which we should think, the way in which we should evaluate the issues of life, and the way in which we should order our priorities, that we may fulfill our mission as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, members of his body And in this church age, fulfill that mission, proclaiming the message of the gospel. Father, we thank you that we have your word. And now as we study it, open our eyes to its truth, that we may come to a greater understanding of who you are, who we are, what you have provided for us, and how we are to live. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to have a uh, flyover this morning, a summary of what's coming up in the next section. If you remember, we divided uh, Ephesians into three sections. The first section is the first three chapters from Ephesians 1, 1, down through the end of Ephesians chapter 3. And the focus there is on the wealth that Christ has provided for us, the wealth that we have in Christ, all of the resources, all of the assets, all of the privileges that are ours in Christ. And many refer to this as the doctrinal section of the epistle, And what that means is that this is the instructional section, although all of it is instructional, but it is talking about something a little more abstract. And then Paul comes down to Ephesians chapter 4, and he begins to talk about application. He begins to talk about how we should live in light of what we have and who we are in Christ. And so this is referred to as the practical section, the next two sections, the um, walk of the believer. And I have entitled this the Christian Code of Conduct. And we will look at a number of things as we go through this. But this describes how the believer is expected to think and to live in light of our new identity in Christ our new position in Christ and all that has been provided for us in Christ so as he we begin chapter 4 Paul transitions to talking about the implications of those assets on how we are to live individually and also on the corporate life of the believer in the body of Christ. And so we understand uh, that this is not something we implement by our own strength and by our own power and by our own ability, but we are to be strengthened by God the Holy Spirit, as Paul prayed at the end of chapter three, that we would be strengthened according to the, his riches in glory and strengthened by might through his spirit in the inner man. And so now he is talking about the ways in which we should be strengthened and the lifestyle of the believer. Now, the first verse, as we've covered in the last two lessons, because we were doing our survey and reminder of everything we covered in the first three cha- chapters, begins with a therefore. And every time you see a therefore, you need to ask, what is that therefore? I see several of you are able to uh, lip-sync that as I say that, that's good, now you've learned it. That's the point of repetition. So we know that this is a conclusion and although when you read the commentaries and you read various people, they try to make it a conclusion from either the last two verses of chapter three or the last six or seven verses of chapter three, but in fact, it is a conclusion from all that we have learned in the first 3 chapters it is not to be restricted to just a single thing because he is developing the implications of everything there are a tremendous number of connections between the first 3 chapters and what we are challenged to do in the um in the last 3 chapters First thing I want to kind of mention in terms of an overview, uh, two things. First of all, what we find in this section is a number of commands, a number of imperative mood verbs. That means a verb that is focused on challenging us to a certain standard, to live a certain way. And we see this. Um, uh, Throughout this, a simple thing to do is just to analyze how many imperative verbs there are. Uh, This is typical of Paul in some of his epistles. The first part of the epistle, he tells us all that God through Christ has done for us. And then in the last part, he tells us what the implications are. Now, this tells us that the way in which the average church and the average believer thinks about application today Uh, is not in sync with the Word of God because what you find as the trend in most churches today is topical messages that focus on five ways to do this or six ways to have a happy marriage or seven ways to raise your kids or nine ways to destroy your spiritual life or something like that. And all that's guaranteed to do is to make you and keep you an infant believer because that touches on whatever the pastor seems to think is significant at that particular time. And it has always struck me that the homiletics professors at seminaries have a great deal of arrogance. And I say that because I was astounded in one of my introductory homiletics classes. For those of you who don't know, homiletics is the study of preaching. And the professor commented that what he would do, and he had this sanctimonious voice, on, on Saturday night, he would literally walk in through the congregation, through the auditorium. He knew where everybody sat, and he would pray for each family and what their needs are. What I've discovered through my 40 years is I don't have a clue what you're going through. Some of you I know a little bit more than others, but generally I don't any more than you know that much about me. The inner struggles that we have in our spiritual life are mostly between us and the Lord, and we just don't know those things. And then the same uh, professor would say, so I try to pick application points in my message that fit what these families are going through. And I thought, well, you don't know what they're going through. How can you really do that? And I'm always astounded as I teach through the Word verse by verse that I will be teaching on some subject. I'll teach on a whatever night it is, Sunday morning. And then a week or two later or maybe even after church that day, somebody will comment, boy, that really did... I needed to hear that. The Holy Spirit really needed to teach me that in relation to something I'm going through. And I had no idea at all. And in fact, I'll tell you a little secret among pastors, is often pastors will comment on, well, it's amazing. Last week, I just didn't quite feel like I had finished my study of this particular passage that I was teaching that morning. And when I finished, I just didn't feel like I was that confident when I was teaching. And and I would just had an off day. And five people came up to me afterward and talked to me about how God blessed them with that message, how great it was, and picked out specific points to illustrate that it was significant to them. And I had no idea. And I've learned that whatever I do, God uses it in ways I have no idea about. And, and so this is, this is uh, very important as we get into these passages is to understand that application comes in all kinds of different ways. And it's not this simplified childish infantile approach that many churches have when they think about uh, application. And so, Uh, Paul often starts off with uh, more what we would call doctrinal, theological teaching topics, and then in the last part, he will talk about what we should do in light of that. For example, in Romans, uh, the imperative mood is used 62 times, but 13 of those are in the first 11 chapters 49 times he uses the imperative in chapters 12 through 16, but 15 are at the end where he goes greet so-and-so and and greet so-and-so and and tell so-and-so hello, kiss him on the cheek, all that kind of stuff. And so that would reduce that from uh, 49 to 35, but 35 imperatives for the Christian life compared to 11 in the first 11 chapters. So you see how that breaks down when we come to Ephesians, there's only one imperative in the first three chapters. And that comes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, where he says, Therefore remember that you Gentiles in the flesh were once called uh, uncircumcised by those who are called the circumcised, that command to remember. So that's not exactly an applicational point for us. Uh, But when we get into the second part, There are uh, 40 imperatives in the last three chapters, 40 compared to one. The comparatives are do this, do that, do this, do that. And so we understand that that there's a lot of commands there, but that's almost a superficial way of looking at it because there are other ways to express a command when you get into Greek. For example, in this first verse it says, uh, I beseech you to do something. So the to do is an infinitive. The I beseech is I urge, I strongly urge you to do something. Well, that has an imperative force, even though it isn't an imperative mood verb to begin with. And uh, something to support that is that the remaining uses of the verb to walk in Ephesians are all in the imperative mood. And you have imperative. Uh, participles and things of that nature. And so when we look at this epistle in the last half, there's a lot more than 40 commands for the Christian life. and There's a lot of them. And some people I have heard recently, which is somewhat disturbing, is that there are those within so-called doctrinal churches that are teaching, well, if you emphasize all these commands, that's not being grace-oriented that's heresy. That's antinomianism. Uh, Grace means that God is the one who provides everything for us, but that doesn't come with certain uh, behavioral protocols for those who are in the family of God, just like you grew up in a family, and I grew up in a family, and there were certain guidelines, certain expectations of how we would live because we were uh, part of that particular, uh, particular family. So the imperatives simply describe what God expects of a child of God, how he expects them to live. Uh, Second thing, just as a general overview, is the use of the command to walk. And the basic divisions of these chapters are going to revolve around these commands to walk. We find them in chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, which says, walk worthy of the Lord with which you were called. 4.17 is a negative. No, no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. Uh, in 5.2, walk in love. In 5.8, walk as children of light. In 5.15, walk as wise. And so we see that this concept of walking is one of Paul's favorite metaphors ...for describing the Christian life, the Christian code of conduct. Uh, some, ways, some translations will translate it as conduct yourselves this way. Others will say live your life this way because that's the idea. And uh, one of the things that should come to our mind is that in many other passages... ...you have commands such as uh, walk in the light, uh, walk by the Spirit, uh, walk in truth... All of these are describing the same kind of thing that Paul is describing here as he's summarizing uh, the standards for living the uh, Christian life. Now, I have divided this uh, up according to this structure, the commands to walk, and there are 12 paragraphs in chapters 4-1 through 6-9. And so we're just going to basically no pun intended, walk our way uh, through these sections of Ephesians. So we get an overview, sort of a map of where Paul is headed with this, and we can uh, think through this. So we begin with Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. That is the introduction to the section where he is focusing on the basic command to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace that's at the end of verse 3 and then he talks about that which we all have in unity that that we, there is going to, one body one spirit we were called in one hope of our calling it doesn't matter if it's jew or gentile remember that's the background from chapter 2 is that there uh, prior to the day of Pentecost, there were the Gentiles who were the uncircumcised, and there's the uh, Jews who are circumcised and under the Abrahamic covenant, and now they are together the uh, Mosaic covenant has been abolished by the work of Christ on the cross so that there's no more barrier between Jew and Gentile. They are now united in peace and reconciled together uh, to God. And so when he gets to chapter 4 and we read, there's one body, one spirit, uh, you should be thinking in terms of there is one body for Jew and Gentile, there's one spirit for Jew and Gentile, uh, there 's one hope of your calling for Jew and Gentile, one Lord, one faith. You get the point that it is there 's no more uh, distinction, and as I pointed out last time, the only legitimate ethnic distinction that God made that has been made in history was the one God made in Genesis chapter twelve verses one through three when God called out Abraham to Uh, give a distinct mission to him and his descendants in the Abrahamic covenant. And then the guidelines for how they should live were given to the nation in the Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant starting in uh, Exodus chapter 20. And so this, this was a standard and it distinguished between Jew and Gentile But when Christ abolished that, and you now have unity in Christ, there's no basis for not only that one legitimate ethnic distinction, but that that means that all other man-made ethnic distinctions usually goes by the term of racism, which is overused, abused, and misused today. But any time that we as believers are making an issue for whatever reason— Uh, that relates to a person's uh, skin color, relates to their subculture, relates to their ethnicity. Anything where there are divisions based on those things has no place whatsoever in the body of Christ. Uh, neither are we to make distinctions between Jew and gent, I mean, between male and female, or between slave and free, because all of us are one in the body of Christ. Now, we have different roles. Uh, there are different roles for those who are men and those who are women, as God has outlined in the scripture, but that does not mean there is an inherent distinction or uh, one is superior and the other inferior. So Paul begins this with this emphasis on unity, and he, uh, the command is to walk uh, worthy of the calling with which you are called. So as we look at that, we're going to have to analyze a number of different words. What does he mean exactly by walk worthy? And that really has the idea of setting an extremely high standard. We are to walk in a manner... That reflects our gratitude and our appreciation for all that God has given us and who we are, our new identity in Christ. And the idea of the calling, what exactly is that? And I will do a little study on that, but the idea of the calling is, a, it has a use in English and a use in, in uh, Greek as well and in Scripture. The old, the old King James translated a vocation. Now, that's a term that really got muddled up in church history. Vocation was what uh, was used in the Roman Catholic Church from the early Middle Ages to describe those who were being called into uh, being a, in the monastery, being a monk, being a priest, being a, a nun. That was their vocation. Nobody else, else had a vocation. Uh, Martin Luther came along and said, no, that's wrong. Everybody has a calling. Everybody has a vocation, a mission in the body of Christ. And so there's that emphasis that this is our our vocation. Every believer has been called, and as such, there is a protocol, a standard for that calling. It's something like a profession. Now, there aren't that many professions. There are more now than they were when I was in university, When I entered the teaching profession, we had a, I had a professor who made a big deal about that, and at that time I think there were only about 22 or 23 professions. And there are strict guidelines for what makes a profession a profession and not just a career. But uh, a profession has to do with certain standards that have to be met to be part of it. And one profession is of course the medical profession, the dental profession, and so they have a code of conduct. When you go to a doctor, you go to a dentist, you expect certain behavior uh, from them. There is a code of ethics. There, There's a standard of how they are going to uh, conduct themselves, and anything less than that is a violation of their professional standards, their professional ethics, and they can be uh, brought up on uh, charges or uh, various disciplinary procedures because of that. And so a calling is a person's uh, profession for us as believers. That is our, uh, in a sense, the profession that we have as Christians and that there is a code of conduct that goes along with that, and we are to live consistently with that. That is going to be characterized, verse 2, with two, two or three words here that really bother a lot of people. Lowliness and gentleness is how it's translated. It really, both words have to do with humility, and most people really have a problem understanding the biblical concept of humility because as arrogant, self-absorbed sinners, we don't like it. In fact, the first word that is used that's translated as, as lowliness is a word that wasn't used outside of the Bible before the Bible. Greeks hated these words. Anybody who was like this was just horrible. And uh, they were a somebody to be taken advantage of. And see, that's the problem. We think of as humility as somebody who's just going to walk over us and take advantage of us. But these words are used to describe the Lord Jesus Christ and used to describe Moses, neither of whom was taken advantage of, neither of whom was walked over by their people. And they tried to, but they were both in control and they operated under the authority of God but not in a not in a way that violated the other aspects of the code of conduct so we have to look at that because that characterizes how we are to put up with one another in love the word in the english bearing with one another is a not a concept we readily get a hold of or grasp, but I think most of us understand what it means when we have to put up with one another in love because sometimes we're not um, the most lovable, we are not in our best form, and we are going to put up with each other in love because we're members of the body of Christ. And and also the next participle, endeavoring, uh, meaning working to keep and maintain the unity of the Spirit that is brought about by the Spirit in the bond of peace. So we have a lot to discuss uh, when we get there. And then the next section is very important because it, the, the first six verses talk about what we all have in common, and then the next set of verses from 7 uh, down through 16, all of which we read earlier, focus upon... Uh, what we have in distinction from each other, and it talks about spiritual gifts to each one of us. Grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And immediately he quotes from a passage in psalm sixty eight eighteen. And this is going to take some important study because we have to go through and understand the significance of psalm sixty eight eighteen what's happening there. One of the important things is that when it says, when he ascended on high, in Psalm 68, 18, it's talking about Yahweh. It's talking about God the Father. And now when you get here, Paul is applying this to the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is an important passage on the deity of Christ, and it's an important passage that relates to the uh, Trinity as well. Uh, not to mention the significance of ascension and the giving of gifts. And so this is some study we'll have to do on ascension and on the giving of gifts, which in this passage is focusing on four. Some people think there are five, but due to the Greek grammar, there are four. There's apostles and prophets, which were temporary gifts in the first century before the canon of Scripture was completed. Today we have evangelists, and then the way the Greek constructs, the grammar constructs this, pastors and teachers, while they are not identical, that would be a false use of a, of a grammatical rule, they are overlapping, and the two terms are describing the same person. In English, you can see that a little bit because you have the English word some uh, in front of apostles, prophets, and evangelists, but only one some in front of pastors and teachers. And as I have taught this in the past, a pastor emphasizes the leadership aspect and teaching emphasizes how he leads. It's through his teaching. Just as a shepherd... Uh, shepherds the flock one of the primary ways is by taking them to good pasture to feed them so the pastor is to uh, is to fulfill his mi- his mission by teaching and the purpose of that is given in verse 12 to equip the saints for the work of ministry we have a tradition in the history of christianity that the pastor is called the minister because he does the ministry but that's not biblical. The pastor's role is to teach the congregation and to equip them to carry out the work of the uh, ministry. And that involves the edification of the body of Christ. So now we're back to uh, the, the focus on the corporate body of Christ until we all come to the unity of the faith. Now this is the same word that's used back in Uh, verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in a bond of peace. And here we have the unity of the faith that relates not to the act of believing, but to what is believed, that there is a set body of truth that is our faith, and that is not ever to be compromised. We do not have peace at the expense of our doctrine. We do not just wrap our arms around each other and sing Kumbaya and just glory in the experience of aren't we all happy together. It is a unity that is based on not compromising the faith that, as Jude puts it, has been uh, handed to us once for all, given to the saints. And the purpose of this is that we should no longer be babies. It's a Greek word emphasizing Uh, little untrained children who are tossed like uh, waves by the wind, carried about by every wind of doctrine. That produces a lack of unity. And then that we are to carry this out by speaking the truth. That's another synonym for the body of faith that we believe, the doctrine that we believe. And by learning that and applying it, we are able to grow up and mature In Christ. Now, this takes us then to the next division that we are to put on the new man. Now, I have phrased this in a positive way, but the way Paul puts it is a negative. He says, You're not to walk like the Gentiles anymore. In other words, we all know how non Christians live, what characterizes the life of non Christians. And we are not to let that influence our conduct and how we live. We are to be different. Now, we have to be careful there because there are some people who go into various modes of legalism at that point. I could tell a very long story at this point. I'll cut it down quite a bit. But the first church that I ever went to to candidate for pastor was a Cajun church in southern Louisiana in Opelousas, the heart of Cajun country. And I went there and I met with the deacons. And they they apparently had several questions they wanted to ask me. It's interesting. I don't know if you remember, uh, there was a song called uh, Amos Moses. Jerry Reed sang it. And it was about this Cajun, and his left arm was gone clean up to the elbow because a gator got him. Well, he was one of the deacons. And he didn't speak English real well, so his his he could understand it but he couldn't speak but, so his son would translate into Cajun French all this dialogue that was that was going on but their first question was what's your philosophy of ministry and so I covered that and we talked about that for 5 or 10 minutes but the second question was would i preach against smoking drinking and dancing and i explained why that was not biblical and I said, "Why do you think I should do that?" I said, "Well, nearly everybody here is a Roman Catholic and they just do whatever they want to do and live just like the the world. And so we want to distinguish ourselves from them and so we we aren't going to do anything that they do." Now that's legalism. And uh, so we discussed that for about an hour and a half. And then decided that, um, uh, that, that we would wrap up our discussion. And then I spoke the next Sunday morning and Sunday night and went home. Truly, actually got out of my car at that little uh, rest area that just this side of the Sabine River. Got down on my hands and knees and kissed the soil of Texas. I was so glad <laughs> to be home. So that's taking it to a legalistic conclusion. But we are not to live like the rest of the Gentiles walk, like they conduct their lives in the emptiness of their mind. Now this section from 417 to 432 is again one of the most significant sections in the scripture on the spiritual life and in the topic of sanctification. We would connect this to for example, John chapter 15, our Lord's discourse on abiding in him, uh, Galatians five sixteen down to the end of the chapter, walking by the Spirit, and much that is in uh, the epistle of 1 John. These are the bedrock passages along with Romans 6 through 8 on the spiritual life. And it is uh, in some ways difficult because of the Greek grammar, but it is quite important to understand these things, and he talks about the fact that we have put on the new man, which is everything that we are in terms of our identity in Christ, and that we are to put off the old man, which isn't the sin nature. Many people taught that, that the old man was the old sin nature, but the old man is our identity and all that we were before we were saved. We have, it's the, uh, the whole idea is uh, imagery is taking off a set of clothes and putting on another set of clothes, and that we are ultimately to be, verse 23, renewed in the spirit of our mind. And that means thinking. So the spiritual life doesn't begin with following a, a set of external behavioral standards that you do this and you don't do this, and uh, don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with those that do. It is changing the way you think. We have to get our thoughts in line with a biblical worldview, a theocentric, Christocentric worldview as expressed in the 66 books of the Bible. So it starts with our thinking, as Paul says in Romans chapter 12, that we are to have our thinking renewed. We are not to be pressed into the mold of the world, but have our thinking renewed? So he is expanding those ideas in this passage, and then we get down to the uh, next section, which is really walking in a way that does not grieve the Holy Spirit. And this is in Ephesians chapter four, verses twenty-five uh, to thirty-two, which is which has uh, about eleven or twelve commands in it. It is an intense passage. It starts off, put away lying. Speak truth with your neighbor. Be angry and don't sin. Two different commands there. Uh, Don't give place to the devil. Uh, Don't steal any longer. Uh, Work with your hands. Uh, Let no corrupt word come out of your mouth. Uh, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, Put aside all bitterness, wrath, anger, uh, clamor, and evil speaking, and put away all of this with all malice. And be kind to one another, uh, uh, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So that is a, a summary of key standards for the spiritual life, and we'll walk our way through them, unfortunately, I've, I've always said chap, the chapter division is in a, a bad spot because I think verse 1 really goes with verse 32. Therefore, be imitators of God. We were just told that we are to forgive one another even as God in Christ for, forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God. We are to forgive one another. So we have to deal with those those topics that are so hard for contemporary American Christians to deal with, and that is humility and uh, lowliness and gentleness, all of that word group, and then it ends with uh, forgiving one another. And the word here isn't the word afiemi, which indicates more the act of forgiveness, but it's the word charizomai, which emphasizes the motivation of the forgiveness. Both words are used in banking to refer to the eradication of a debt. And that takes us to Colossians 2, that uh, the certificate of debt was nailed to the cross so that that is e- eradicated, Christ paid the penalty. And then we come to the uh, next section, verses uh, 1 through 8, that we are to walk in love. Actually, it begins in verse 2. And walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us. So the pattern all through this is we're to live on the basis of the example of Christ, how how God forgave us uh, as Christ died for our sins and now... Uh, This is a pattern for walking in love, and that involves putting aside, again, certain uh, activities, mental attitudes, and that all of these, such as fornication and uncleanness and covetousness, which Paul identifies as idolatry over in Colossians 3, that this shouldn't even be named among us. In other words, it shouldn't characterize anybody's life that is in the body of Christ. And then he says, For this you know, that no no fornicator, unclean person, covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God in Christ. So there we're going to have to deal with this whole issue of what does that mean? And unfortunately, there are too many people who think inheriting the kingdom is equivalent to getting into heaven when you die. And it is not. And that is very important to understand because, uh, if, if it does, if we look at all the passages that talk about that, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, Galatians chapter 5, talk about if you practice these things, if you commit these sins, then you won't have a, an inheritance in the kingdom, then that would mean that salvation was by works. And because you have a lot of uh, sins listed there, such as homosexuality, pedophilia, different things like that, that a lot of these legalistic Christian groups make make that a condition of salvation. And they say some of the most egregious, horrible things and go to war against all of the homosexuals and lesbians and uh, everything else. Now, the Bible is very clear that those are sins, But they can't keep you from being saved. No sin can keep us from being saved because Christ paid the penalty for every single sin. And so we don't isolate any particular sin as being more egregious or hindering our salvation than any other sin. But all sins will indeed have some some consequences either here or at the judgment seat of Christ. Not that they are mentioned there. The sins are paid for, but they will... uh, if if we're involved in certain sins, then we're certainly not growing in the Lord, and we're not carrying out our ministry, and so it's going to limit that which is produced that is rewardable. So we'll get into that, and then we come to the next section, starting in verse nine, where we are to walk in the light, and this is uh, really starts in eight b, and uh, takes us through uh, verse fourteen. And we are to walk as children of light. And Paul starts verse 8 by saying, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. That's our position. Walk as children of light, that's our practice. Now, a lot of Christians are, ha, are in the position of being a child of light, but they're not practicing it. So they're living as if they are walking in darkness, walking in sin. And so the scriptures make it clear that these sins are all paid for. And when we do sin, and there are a number of these sins that many of us will engage in to one degree or another throughout most of our lives. And when we, because we're sinners and we're, have that corrupt sin nature and we're going to lie and we're going to uh, do this and we're going to do that. and We're going to gossip and slander and all of these other things. But when we confess those sins, we are instantly forgiven of those sins and cleansed of all unrighteousness. Now, that's not a license to sin, but that is the freedom to be able to continue to grow spiritually without these sins dragging us down or putting an emphasis on us uh, needing to somehow impress God with our remorse uh, so that we can uh, continue in the spiritual life. And then we come down to uh, walk in wisdom, which is from 515 down to 21. And what one thing I'll point out as we go through this is that all through this section, going back into at least the beginning of chapter 5, there are these commands to either do this or do that. It's a binary option. It, it, and And the bottom line is that you're either doing this or you're doing that. You're either walking in the light or walking in darkness. You're either... Uh, walking in wisdom, or you're walking like a fool. And so when we come down to Ephesians 5.18, which says, do not be uh, drunk with wine, wherein, which is in excess, but be filled by means of the Holy Spirit, it's either one or the other. Uh, you, you have, it characterizes certain lifestyle And as I pointed out many times, the being drunk with wine isn't talking about just drinking wine and getting drunk in isolation. But in the background in Ephesus, you had the worship of the God of wine, Dionysius, and the way in which you became uh, unified with the spirit of Dionysius was you went out and you went up into the uh, hills and the groves and you got drunk on wine and you would, uh, the maenads who were the priestesses, would dance and whirl until they got in a, some kind of ecstatic, drunken state. And then the spirit of Dionysius would speak through them. And so wine in the worship of Dionysius was a means to being unified with God, and in contrast, we are to be filled by means of the Spirit. We don't get more of the Spirit. He fills us with something, and we get that from Colossians 3, uh, 316, that we are to let the word of Christ richly dwell within us because the consequences of those two things are the same. And this is what is identified uh, starting in uh, verse, really actually verse 19, where it emphasizes speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord, being grateful to God, giving thanks for all things to the Lord, and submitting to one another in the fear of God. Those are the same results you have following the, the letting the word of Christ richly dwell within you over in Colossians chapter 3. So being filled by the Spirit, filled with what? The word of God. So you see, as you see many places in Scripture, that, that combination of the Spirit of God plus the word of God is the key to spiritual growth. And then it's going to result in a change in home life. And so we have the introduction In chapter 5, verses 22 to 33, is the consequences for wives and to husbands. One of the key words that's used 10 times in Ephesians is the word love, a word that is first used in relation to God, but is also used in relation to believer to believer. Wives, uh, Wives are not commanded to love their husbands. Husbands are three times commanded to love their wife in this section. That's an important thing for the men to note, is that husbands are to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And then you get down into uh, verse 28. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So there's the emphasis for the husband's responsibility, and then it goes on uh, from there, talking about the walk of the believer in terms of the family. And Ephesians 6, 1 through 4 talks about how children are to conduct their lives. They are to obey their parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then fathers are not to provoke their children uh, to wrath but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Notice it didn't say, and you wives. It didn't say, and you mothers. Guys, that's your job. Now you will be, because you have to work outside the home, you have to do other things, you have been given, um, you can delegate some of that, but I'm telling you, the fathers who are spending time praying with their children, reading scripture to their children, talking to them about the Lord, are the fathers who are going to build a much stronger relationship and have a much better impact than the fathers who are delegating all of that to the mother. The mother obviously is with them more. She is going to have a great impact. But fathers in our culture need to reverse course in this particular area and spend a lot more time uh, in that area. And then the last section is going to deal with the relationship of servants or slaves, actually, to their masters and their relationship to the Lord. And that will take us down to verse 9. Again, bondservants or slaves are to be obedient to their masters, With fear and trembling insincerity of heart. Now, we can apply that to employee-employee relationships, to a lot of other relationships. Peter tells us, even when the master is harsh, even when he is unjust in his actions, a lot to say about the relationship in these various authority relationships and how believers are to continue to operate in humility and in gentleness so this describes the christian life and then when by the time we get there we will not have far to go to go, cover the last short section from 6:10 down to 6:20 which deals with the warfare of of the believer So this is a tough section because Paul steps on everybody's toes. God steps on everybody's toes in his word. And I'm not picking on anybody because the Holy Spirit does a pretty good job of that uh, for me. He is the one who is rebuking and correcting every one of us. And so as we go through this section, we'll learn a lot. We'll be challenged a lot in our own spiritual life and spiritual walk. But we have to understand that there is a code of conduct for those who are in this. What did Paul say? It's a new man. It's a new body. It's a new building. It's a new temple that is being built today for the indwelling of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we are to walk worthy of this new identity as members of the body of Christ, having been given the qualifications to go into heaven. We could never earn it or deserve it, but because Christ died for our sins, and when we believe on him, then we receive his righteousness, and that is the basis for our eternal salvation. Let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are thankful that we have you to come to always in prayer that you hear us, you know of our prayers, even before we pray them. But you desire us to bring these petitions before you. And Father, we pray that as we study through these next chapters in Ephesians, that uh, we will uh, be willing, ready to listen, to understand what is expected of us, that you would Uh, Give me clarity and guidance as I handle your word and teach your word and study your word to present it accurately. And that this would be a challenge to each of us to push on to to the high calling that we have in Christ, to press on to spiritual maturity, to recognize that we have a message and a mission as Paul had. Uh, We have the same message and mission, and we are to carry this out to fulfill as ambassadors for Christ in this generation. And we pray for any who are listening today who've never trusted in Christ as Savior. We pray that you would help them to understand that God the Holy Spirit would make it very clear it's not up to them, it's not based on their behavior, it's not based on what they do or what they haven't done, Uh, it's not negated by what they've done or what they haven't done. It's all based on what Christ did on the cross and just accepting that free gift of salvation, believing in him and him alone and having eternal life. And we pray that you would make this clear to the unbelievers who listen. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.